Hi, and welcome to the Vote Her podcast, because when you vote, great things can happen. Hi, it's Mara Davis, and I have a little mask anxiety. I'm taking it on. I'm taking it off. I'm just getting used to the new rules, and I'm not running for lieutenant governor. Well, I am Jen Jordan, and I'm not running for lieutenant governor either. So, you know, I'm glad we're all on the same page here. Well, I'll start with that. Uh, Jeff Duncan not running again for lieutenant governor. He announced it this week, which was uh, not surprising, right? No, not a surprise. I mean, look, he is wildly unpopular in terms of the Republican base. I mean, he was showing up on CNN every day. I mean, it was almost like putting, you know, a red cloth in front of a bull. And so there was just no way, no way that he was going to be able to run re-election. So, you know, this way he can kind of step back and look like he's doing something courageous. But the reality is he was just going to get beat. All right. Who's going to run for that? Who isn't going to run for that? So is that going to be a big like beauty contest? I think it'll be a little bit of a fight. But, you know, what's interesting is, you know, we have a June 30 disclosure date. And for those of you who aren't super familiar, you have to disclose all of your campaign donations at certain points in the year, right? And the June 30 date is significant because for people who have announced for these various offices, it's people really look at that, like the media looks at it, you know, other donors look at it to determine the level of strength that a candidate may have. And so we've already had, for example, Butch Miller has announced he is currently the president pro tem of the state Senate, and he's from Gainesville, and he's announced that he's running for LG. But he just did that like last week. So he has like, what, less than 40 days, 45 days to try to put up a big number on the board. And I know there's been talk that Senator Burke Jones may run for lieutenant governor. There are all these other people that are kind of in the mix. So we'll see. All right. A couple of other announcements. Governor Kemp uh, announced he's running for reelection. So that's happening. Yes, it is. We also had um, the Secretary of State, Raffensperger. He is running again. Yeah, that's that's an interesting one for me because it was, I thought that as long as he didn't get a primary challenger, then I could see him running. But Jody Heiss is already out there. And Jody Heiss already has the endorsement of Donald Trump. So I'm not quite sure what Raffensperger how he thinks he's going to get through. Okay. And we also have Attorney General Chris Carr is running again. He is. That's fascinating. Yes. Yes. More on that later. (laughs) Uh, There are some rumors going around that Gabriel Sterling may be running uh, in Lucy McBath's district. We've been hearing that. That's Greg Bluestein kind of put that out there. Yeah. It goes back to, again, the whole idea, especially with Sterling or Raffensperger, I mean, they're Republicans and they have to run in a Republican primary and they are not very popular in the Republican Party in terms of the base. So, you know, Godspeed. Right? OK. And then finally, the biggest one is Herschel Walker running for Raphael Warnock's seat. A lot of information and news going around because I think that's one of the most watched Senate races, even though we're months away from that. His name keeps coming up, Jen. Well, it's because Trump is pushing him to do it. I mean, Trump is the one who's throwing it out there. I've heard that Trump is the one on the phone saying, run, Herschel, run. But there are some 
technical problems there because Herschel doesn't even live in the state of Georgia. He he's lived in Texas for maybe 20 years. And so the whole idea that he's just going to like come here and run for U.S. Senate, it's just kind of odd. But do rules matter anymore? I mean, look, I mean, at this point, there's so many rules. What a Marjorie Taylor Greene had two properties. She's breaking the law. Nobody cares. She's running around harassing people. Nobody cares. If they just plopped him into Georgia, you think there's really going to be technicalities with that? They're going to let him do it. No, no, no. Listen, no, no. The law is the law. Okay. I mean, it's one of these things where when you've got a bright line, no, it's not okay. What Marjorie Taylor Greene did is she took her homestead exemption on two different properties. That's tax fraud. You can't do that. Herschel Walker, you cannot run for U.S. Senate if you don't live in the state of Georgia. So there are some bright lines, and it's one of those things where I know that we've all kind of stepped back during the Trump era and thought, well, nobody's enforcing the rules. That doesn't mean they're not still there. And it sure doesn't mean that we should ignore them going forward. All right. Well, it'll be interesting to see because certainly he's getting a lot of coverage right now. There was an op-ed about, you know, him talking about his book in the AJC. They talked about, you know, his his autobiography and his uh, struggles with mental health and some of the things that he's done over the years and how that will be fodder for Uh, the opposition as far as, and you know, it is a slippery slope as far as like, you know, what he's been through over the years. So you got to prepare yourself. You're running for Senate. Everything's out there. Well, and he's been a very public person and there is a lot out there. I mean, it's it's interesting to me because especially it's kind of like with respect to Kelly Leffler or anybody who just jumps into a statewide campaign and has never even run for dog catcher. Running for office is hard. It is not easy. And whether you are talking about running for, you know, your local board of education, state rep, state senate, it is quite a learning curve. And all of a sudden, you are like running around naked because people can see everything that, you know, you've ever done or you've ever even thought about doing. So if there are some some issues that you don't want, you know, to have under the glare of the spotlight, you may want to think twice before running for statewide office. Two things I want to address of what you said, running around naked. I like that. Um, that's good. It's a good, good way of putting it, Jen. And also, I think I'm the, the only thing I'm qualified to run for is dog catcher. And I would love that job because then I get to be with all the dogs. It'd be fun. Yeah, I don't think that's the point of that one. (laughs) I know this, of course. Another big thing is this January 6th commission, which is is really very frustrating how it seemed that like there was a bipartisan deal ready to go. You would think that we would kind of want to get down to the bottom of it. And especially if you're a member of the Senate or the House where your chambers were breached by people who wanted to kill you. I think you'd want to at least kind of do a little bit of an investigation as to why the security broke down the way it did. And also, there's been so much focus on the police and Blue Lives Matter and, you know, hearing the stories of the Capitol Police and the and the families are wanting to have this commission and it's not happening. So this falls back into, I feel like it's just a cult, Jen. It's very culty. They just have to observe the dear leader. Because it's going to hurt him. Well, it's interesting. Marjorie Taylor Greene had some comments on the floor of Congress where basically she said that a lot of the people who'd been arrested for their role in January 6th were being abused. So let's take a listen to that. 
The people who breached the Capitol on January 6th are being abused, some even being held for 23 hours a day in solitary confinement. Yeah. I mean, I just don't even understand. I mean, we've got video of these people attacking police officers. We have video of them breaching the chamber, defacing the Capitol, and she's acting like there's some kind of heroes that are that are being treated poorly. And the PTSD that anybody who has to live with being a police officer on that day, this is just absolutely crazy. And this isn't going away. So, you know, listen, it is what it is, you know. Um, remember all the hearings they had on Benghazi? <laughs> yeah. Okay. I mean, that's, I mean, I just don't even understand why we don't, why, why is this, why can't we agree on this, right? This seems like a gimme. A no-brainer. I just I just got a, someone sent me an article of the New Yorker, Andrew Barowitz, who's this hysterical uh, comedy writer. And he said, Kevin McCarthy is proposing to cancel the, the day January 6th doesn't even exist anymore. I, I just think that they're just going to try to act like it didn't happen. Yeah. And that we should just all get over it. I mean, that, I mean, they have said that, basically. And I'm just kind of like, what is wrong with y'all? Well, we have videos, we have pictures. It's a good thing that people all, died. All the people that were there thought it was a great idea to live stream it. So a picture is forever. We won't forget. I had messaged you uh, immediately because sometimes so much news happens so fast. But I, I needed like a lawyer's opinion on this because suddenly I'm really interested in attorney generals and like law stuff that I don't understand. So the New York attorney general announced with the Manhattan DA that they were pursuing criminal charges on the Trump organization. And I said to you, is this a big deal or meh? And you said, yeah. There's been a civil case that they've been investigating, which kind of boiled down to Trump misrepresenting the value of his properties to get money from banks. So it's kind of considered bank fraud, right? But at a civil place, not, not a criminal place. But they've gotten discovery. They've seen the documents. They've talked to the people involved. In the fact that now we've moved from a civil posture to one that's criminal indicates that they've uncovered some stuff that they think are going to carry them over the line. And that is incredibly significant. So is that the role of an attorney general to get to that point and then they call the Manhattan DA and they work together? How to uh, break that down for me? So no. And so let me say this with respect to Georgia and New York, how it played out here is kind of how Georgia usually works. So the Manhattan district attorney has had an ongoing criminal case okay. against Trump, okay? So they've been investigating and they've been going after him for a long time. At the same time, Tish James, the AG in New York, had a civil case that she was investigating. They have now joined forces and what they're probably doing is also sharing information and together they're going to pursue criminal allegations or charges against him. That is not uncommon in terms of joining forces because at the end of the day most of the time it is the district attorneys who actually prosecute criminal cases the attorney general will come in every now and then kind of to help as support or if for example maybe the district attorney is under investigation or somebody that's really high profile so 
it just indicates that they think they've got they've got some real juice here. Now we love Tish James. You really love. Tish I James. love her. But I've seen her criticized a little bit that she's announcing, she's always announcing, we're doing this and we're doing that and we're doing that. Is that good or bad or indifferent? Depends. I mean, from a political strategic place, kind of saying what you're doing, it may be good for political messaging. But then if you don't deliver on it, that's not good, right? From a place of being an attorney, going after people, sometimes you don't want to message too much because A, you don't want to affect a jury pool. B, you don't want to cause a situation where you have to then recuse yourself. We know the issue with the district attorney of Fulton County, Bonnie Willis. She recused herself in the Richard Brooks case, pointing to statements made by Paul Howard, her predecessor. So prosecutors are supposed to be pretty tight-lipped, right? And so I think that's why people get uncomfortable because it really is not kind of a prosecutor's place to be commenting on evidence like that. But at the same time, she has this pretty high profile political position, too. And so you kind of see the two kind of the lines crossing a little bit. All right. We're going to have to wait and see. I mean, we're recording this and then everything could change. <laughs> but, you know, and it always does. Uh, so we'll just leave it at that. All right. So I was really struck by a story by our next guest. Now, I, I first learned about this from the New York Times, did a huge article about President Trump and fundraising on how when you give to a politician or if you give to charity, even there's a form and it says you can give five dollars, ten dollars you know, whatever you want to give. And then it usually you get a pop-up or there's a box you can check that says, do you want to make this a reoccurring donation? I've seen everybody do this kind of thing from the Atlanta Humane Society, who I support greatly. Again, I'll be their dog catcher any day to, you know, contributions I've given to, to people like you, Jen. But what they were doing was in a teeny, 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 tiny little print, the box was already checked. And they were taking money from your account every month. And there was a huge New York Times expose on this. And they found that David Perdue and Kelly Leffler were doing the same thing. Yeah, look, it's it's bad. I mean, that is taking advantage of folks at a, a pretty significant level. And most people don't read all the fine print on paperwork, much less on a website that you may or may not scroll down to one way or the other. And then what happens is you don't even realize it until, you know, your account gets hit again. Maybe you don't realize it for a few months. And that's part of the grift, right? Part of the grift is that hopefully people won't notice and that if they do, we've already captured a few months of money kind of coming through and, you know, and then they won't ask for a refund or we won't refund it, whatever it is. So it's, it's really bad. So we're going to talk to Tia Mitchell about this because she kind of broke this story from the AJC. They were asking questions. Well, we're going to break it down with her because they started asking questions and we'll tell you what happened. All right, a friend of the show. Very excited to have Tia Mitchell with us. Tia, in quotes, very calm sis Mitchell 
who is the Washington correspondent for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And she's with us here today. Hi, Tia. Hello, ladies. It's good to have you on again. Thanks for having me back. I'm glad I didn't, you know, I didn't kick too many people off last time. So you invited me back. I appreciate it. No, you've been doing some excellent work. Big kudos for some of the stories you've broken. Yeah. So the first one, well, first, uh, can you tell us why in your Twitter handle you're the very calm sis? That is a title bestowed upon me by the comedian Leslie Jones because she caught me on MSNBC one time. And I think I was talking about, I don't know what I was talking about, elections or the Capitol insurrection something and she gives critique as she watches MSNBC of like the journalists, their decor, their demeanor. And so she critiqued my apartment, but she also said I came across very calm, like a school teacher, the kind of school teacher who tells you that your son isn't bad. They just have behavioral issues. Okay. Okay. You in Atlanta, right? That's because that's Atlanta apartment. I can tell by the blinds that's an Atlanta apartment. But I do like the flowers over there in the corner. I want to see what that painting is up on the wall. Not sure what color a couch is, but it looks nice with the burgundy pillars. I like her. And she looks calm as fuck. You know what she looked like? She looked like a, like a teacher, like a second grade teacher. Like she's very patient. Like she's the one that tell you, hey, your child is just active. She not crazy. She just active. We're really interested in your reporting about former Senator Leffler and Greater Georgia, her voter rights action group that she's put together, has done some interesting things when it comes to fundraising. Can you tell us more about what you discovered and how you discovered that? We at the AJC decided we wanted to localize this article about refunds and recurring donations just to see how prevalent this practice was amongst our Georgia lawmakers, as well as the political parties and prominent campaign groups um, like Fair Fight um, for Stacey Abrams. And again, Kelly Leffer has recently launched Greater Georgia, which is supposed to be like the conservative version of Fair Fight. And so, but when I was looking initially, Nobody was using the pre-check boxes. You know, everyone had it as an option. You know, a donor can opt in, make this a monthly recurring donation. I didn't find anyone who had weekly as an option, but I also did not find not one member of our congressional delegation that had pre-checked or selected monthly and required people to unselect it until I went to Kelly Leffler's Greater Georgia website. And on her Greater Georgia website, when you click to donate, the make this a monthly donation was pre-checked. And so, you know, our that became, you know, kind of the leading anecdote of our article. And I reached out to her organization and asked questions. And they gave me a very kind of general statement that said, they didn't deny that they were using the pre-check box and they said, but everyone is completely aware. We make sure to confirm it with people so they understand that they are giving monthly and they can change their mind if they want to. And then the very day my article was going live, we were literally putting the finishing touches on it, which was Monday the 17th. 
Isaac, who's my reporting partner, he's the one that helps me crunch all the numbers. I asked for his help because my screenshot of Leffler's website was looking blurry on AJC.com. And I said, you know, why does the screenshot look bad? And so he went back to her website to get a better screenshot and was like, the box is no longer pre-checked. Yeah. So, yeah, it made um, my article different than what it would have been. But it also shows that, like, after we started asking questions, things changed. No, and that's that's what's so crazy about this whole thing, because, I mean, it's my understanding that she was doing this when she was raising money, right, for herself and her campaign. So, and I'm sure there, like you said, there there was coverage about kind of how shady all that was with, with Trump at all. And so then it seems like it was very intentional then for her to kind of carry over that practice with her new group. It's not like she didn't know what was going on kind of thing. Yeah. And I, it, it makes me wonder because, again, when I first asked questions, if it was really like an oversight or maybe it was something that had carried over and they hadn't really thought about. When I first started asking questions, you would think their response would be, you know, we think we should change that, you know, under further review. Or that that wasn't our intention, right? That wasn't our intention. Oh, my gosh, it was a default that was checked. Thank you so much, Tia. We really appreciate it. Yeah, it was a default. And yeah, but it wasn't. They were very much like, you know, yes, we pre-check, but yes, we make sure that people understand what they're signing up for. And then for them a couple days later to just kind of quietly remove the pre-check box was interesting. And also interesting when I went to try to follow back up with them and say, hey, I noticed the box is no longer pre-checked. Any, does that have to do with me asking you questions? Does that have to do with my story, my article coming out? And I never got a response. Have you asked for an interview with her so she could discuss this with you? Yes. So, you know, when I reached out to them, I said, hey, I'm writing this article and, you know, I see that you guys are using this pre-check box. I didn't necessarily say I have to speak to Kelly Leffler, but I said I'd like to speak to somebody at Greater Georgia who can explain the use of this pre-check box. At the time, so Kelly Leffler in her most recent campaign report, she's still issuing so many refunds, her campaign Uh, which is still, you know, closing the books. So not spending a lot of money, but the refunds outweighed any money coming in. And so I did ask, say, can someone talk to me about this practice, especially in light of the New York Times article, in light of even later in April, the Federal Election Commission basically asked Congress to pass a law that makes pre-check boxes illegal. And noted that a lot of their hearing donors that call the FEC and complain and say, hey, I got signed up for these recurring donations and I didn't know. So, you know, I did ask Greater Georgia to kind of clue me into their thinking on this. But again, um, all they gave me was kind of like a, a blanket statement that you see in the article. You know, what's interesting about this, I mean, as a candidate who has raised money and, and, and raises money online, um, with these forms. And, and people do do reoccurring donations. A lot of times it is for small dollar. People will say, you know, I'll give you $3 a month kind of thing. So I wouldn't want to do it as a candidate because people get angry about that stuff. 
I mean, it feels like almost like a grift, right? So why, if I want their vote and I want their support, am I going to do anything that, that may cause them, A, to pull their financial support, but also maybe, you know, not support me like at, when they go vote or tell their friends bad things about me? Yeah, and I do think, you know, that was interesting when we were doing our reporting. We tried to reach, I tried to reach so many Leffler donors and just came up short. But the New York Times, which again, they had this big long-term investigation and they spoke to donors who said that same thing, you know, and they just really felt misled. So I wasn't able to reach any donors, but I did talk to, again, both Republican and Democratic fundraisers who said, this is just not the norm. It's not the usual thing to, again, pre-check the box to make it recurring. We let people check their own box if that's what they want to do. And again, you know, we've got 16 members of Congress. None of them use pre-check boxes in their, on their own website. The two state parties, um, both the Republican Party and the Democratic Party, don't use pre-check boxes on their website. And what was interesting in the New York Times article, there was, though, a Trump supporter who had been grifted, basically, and he was like, it doesn't matter. I still love him, I mean, which was pretty re- remarkable. It's a murky story because, I mean, I think if you're going to have to interview her or Greater Georgia again, that question is going to have to be asked again. That's not going away. I want to move on to the next thing, which is the um, hate crime bill, the anti-Asian hate crime bill. As we know, we had the horrible and tragic shootings here in Atlanta at the spas and as at the time we're recording this all, 11 Georgia Republicans voted against it. Why do you think they voted against it? So there are six Georgia Republicans who all voted against a resolution that condemns the Atlanta spa shootings. But the resolution includes language like, you know, reaffirms our commitment to fighting against racism and that kind of language. Hate has no has no place here. And yeah, all, I'm sorry, eight, all eight, we're all getting the numbers wrong. There are eight Republicans from Georgia in the U.S. House, six Democrats, but all eight Republicans from Georgia voted against this resolution that condemns the Atlanta spa shootings and reaffirms Um, Again, I'm reading from the resolution, reaffirming the House of Representatives' commitment to combating hate, bigotry, and violence against the Asian American and Pacific Islander community. Now, I have not directly spoken to any of our delegation members yet about their vote against this resolution. It's on my to-do list for today, as soon as I hang up with you guys. But yesterday, when they were voting on a separate bill, that specifically deals with hate crimes legislation, tools to help law enforcement agencies do a better job, keeping track of hate crimes, do a better job of investigating hate crimes. That was a separate bill called the COVID-19 Hate Crimes Act. And six of the eight Georgia Republicans also voted against that measure yesterday. And I caught up with Representative Andrew Clyde and I asked him, you know, why did you vote against this bill? And he said, I'm against any bill that deals with hate crimes. We don't need hate crimes laws. If someone breaks 
a law, they broke the law. We don't need extra hate crime law. And I said, well, okay. I said, well, what do you think about if you don't think if it's, if the law is the law and we don't need extra law, I said, does that apply to laws that make it an extra crime if you assault a law enforcement officer or if you assault someone based on their religion or based on their sexuality? Do you think just like any laws that specifically say if you target someone because of who they are or what they represent, we don't need any of that. We just need like basic laws. And then he just shut down and literally just closed his mouth and stopped talking to me. Did he have a crossbody so, um, bag? Does he does he carry a purse? <laughs> no, because no, I always catch him. You know, one of the tricks of this job is you have to know where to catch different members because they're all going to different office buildings. So I catch him in one of the tunnels leading to the office building where his office is. So he's usually either walking to his office or walking from his office to go vote when I catch him. Mm. So, you know, you don't have to bring anything because all you're doing is going to vote and going back. Okay. We, we, br- we bring that up because in the one video where he's saying that January 6th was a tourist attraction, he has a leather strap across his chest. And there, and there are pictures too. <laughs> uh, Representative Terry Anulowitz, who represents parts of Cobb County, she thinks it's a crossbody purse, and she thinks it's a pretty bold statement <laughs> from the gentleman you from sure Georgia. It's not a holster, because someone else oh, asked me if it's a holster. Yeah, but, that's probably what it is. That's, oh, that's probably what it is. And again, is. I don't know, but I mean, someone else asked me, it's like, is that a holster? And I said, oh, I don't know. Or, or he could carry his gun in his purse. I mean, you know, who knows? Hey, the heart wants what it wants. <laughs> Uh, wow. So that's so I uh, man, they really got to run away from you. You're like chasing after them in the tunnel. So what's crazy to me is how do you justify voting against a resolution that condemns hate, bigotry and violence? Like that's that's like saying you don't like puppies and kittens. Like like it is so something that we should all there shouldn't be an issue. Right. Like that's what I don't understand. I think what you bring up a great point, which shows how partisan things are in Washington. I honestly believe that if if Democrats put forward a resolution that says we stand against hate against puppies and kittens, Republicans would find a reason to vote no. And, And quite frankly, vice versa. You know, there's that much distrust. There's that much animosity between the political parties. And so, and quite frankly, because of the way American elections and gerrymandering have set things up for the time being, lawmakers represent a lot of districts that that if they vote in a bipartisan way too often, it brings them down with their constituents back at home. And unfortunately, that incentivizes um, this us versus them mentality. And I'm sure that has just as much to do with Republicans voting no on these two bills related to, you know, Asian American hate in the Atlanta spa shootings than anything else. For example, one of the criticisms we heard about the hate crimes bill is Republicans said we didn't get enough input. So we're voting no, not because it's a bad idea, but we... Democrats didn't include us, didn't listen to our ideas. And so we vote no, which is the same thing you're, you're going to hear later today when Democrats vote no on creating the January 6th commission. 
So it's not even like, I mean, when Republicans vote against creating the January 6th commission, you'll hear them say it's not, some of them, some of them will say it's not because it's a bad idea. It's because we, we weren't included. Now, when you say, well, what did you want? Because House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy got much of what do you want it? And he still is against the bill. And then they start making kind of requests that they know Democrats will never go for in these bills. And then they'll say, you know, well, you didn't do what I wanted, so I'm a no. But it's like a request that Democrats were never going to go for. That seems crazy. I mean, it just seems the January 6th stuff. Tia, you were you were in the Capitol when that happened. Can can you share with us a little bit about your experience? You know, I was here for the tallying of electoral college votes. And what we didn't really fully grasp is as we were watching the joint session of Congress, there were Trump supporters pretty much beginning to surround the Capitol. And then they eventually broke into the Capitol and then they attempted to disrupt the joint session of Congress. The Senate um, escaped, you know, a few minutes before rioters broke into the Senate chamber. The House, which has more members, more people to move, wasn't able to fully evacuate before the rioters began banging on the doors. I was in the group of people that was locked in the chamber while rioters were banging on the doors. And luckily, the chamber, um, they didn't get inside while we were still in the chamber. And we were able to be evacuated and the House chamber was never breached, but people tried. Now, we all know you're a very calm sis. Were you very mm-hmm. calm or was your heart beating uh, like, like, what were you feeling during that? It was pretty calm. I was very much in journalist mode. So for me, it was like, pay attention to what's happening. Soak it in so that I knew I'd have, I knew that it was safe. I was going to be reporting on what I saw. So I was very much watching, trying to be alert, trying to pay attention. I didn't, and also it was just happening so fast that it was, There wasn't even time to be scared, you know, and quite frankly, we didn't know. So the house chamber has no windows. So we could hear people trying to break in, but the magnitude of the insurrection is not something we knew in real time. Oh, that's terrorizing. I thought it was a few people, right. I thought it was like maybe a couple dozen people, not hundreds. Yeah. And so I think one of the reasons I think we, you know, we wanted you to talk about it again is partly because of Congressman Clyde's comments that it was just kind of like any other day filled with tourists coming into the Capitol because I don't think that was your experience. Yeah, and it's interesting because Representative Clyde was locked in the chamber too. You know, he was among the people who helped move furniture to barricade the door to keep the rioters from coming in. And even on his the same day, so last week, he was in a hearing where he talked about saying that what happened on January 6th was not an insurrection. And if you look up, he says it doesn't meet the definition. If you look up insurrection in the dictionary, Merriam-Webster, it says an attempt to overthrow the government, which I believe what happened meets the definition of an insurrection. Absolutely. I think for Representative Clyde, his argument is that because 
the people who breached the Capitol did not come in with guns drawn and therefore no guns were confiscated that day, that the violence level does not meet what he considers the definition of an insurrection. Again, I disagree. And I think if you look up the definition now, when he made those comments last week, he said he called it uh, undisciplined rioters, I think he used. And he said the word there was vandalism. There was an undisciplined protest or something. And he said there were some rioters. Um, but he said that's not an insurrection. But he even said, I was in the chamber. I know what happened. I still don't believe what happened was an insurrection. Now, when he made the comment as there was footage that looked just like tourists, he later admitted to me he was referring to one video. Mm -hmm. So even he is not saying that everything that he saw that day was just normal tourists. He's saying there was one video of people filing into the Capitol that looked like normal tourists. And it's like, but again, that's what he said after the fact. If you look at real time, his statement, that is not the context of his statement in real time. He wasn't that nuanced. It's only later when asked to clarify is when he said, well, I was just talking about one video. Um, But again, I just think the overarching point that he made just doesn't stand up because an insurrection, first of all, there was violence. Just because got confiscated doesn't mean there was no violence. So I think if you think an insurrection requires violence, which Merriam-Webster does not, but even if you think an insurrection requires violence, there's plenty of footage out there of violence that day. Great job yeah, reporting really on the greater Georgia stuff. And, and uh, you know, I will keep asking Kelly Leffler questions about why she hasn't granted you an interview about this, because I think it would make, you know, she, mm-hmm. she, she likes to write her op-eds in the AJC, you know, when it's convenient for her, but not when she's being asked questions. That's right. Well, I appreciate you guys' support. Well, thank you, Tia. Very calm, sis, Michelle. Follow her on Twitter. Follow all her reporting in the AJC. And uh, we got our eye on you, Tia. Thanks so much. All right. We learned. We connected. She's our friend on Capitol Hill, the great Tia Mitchell. She's at Tia Reports on Twitter. Very calm, sis. And then she's also at AJC on Washington. So you can follow Tia. Uh, she's great at her job. Yeah, she's been such a value add to the AJC team. And, you know, I think we see that in the reporting that she's putting out. Well, I also love, I love journalists when, or like legal questioning, when they like figure out like the simplest dumb thing, like it was right here on your website or, hey, I just did a Google search and I found it. The way she was like, yeah, I just looked at everybody's campaign page. She probably looked at yours. Yeah, well, it's some of that gumshoe work. Yeah. But that it, t- it takes time to do that. So, I mean, she thought she she probably had an inkling that something may be going on, but you can't get the story until you actually do kind of the work. Yeah, so I love that about her. All right. Uh, big story um, as far as like the Supreme Court is now going to hear a Mississippi 15-week abortion ban case. And uh, Texas just, uh, the governor of Texas just signed the um, heartbeat bill six weeks, the same, same, basically the same one from Georgia. Yeah, I'm sure it is. And so 
This is for pro-choice supporters and activists. This is very, very troubling news. What does this mean? Uh, Where do we go from here? What do we do? Yeah, so the case is called Dobbs versus Women's Health. And it is a challenge to the 15-week abortion ban in Mississippi. And so what's troubling about this is that the law is pretty settled with respect to the fact that under existing law, Roe v. Wade, and Casey, kind of progeny of cases that came after Roe, that a 15-week ban is unconstitutional. Like, no one says that that is not the case. Usually the Supreme Court only takes cases that there's an unresolved issue, right? Like one judge says, oh, it's unconstitutional, and another judge says it's constitutional. And so then they're the kind of the people who resolve that issue. The fact that we have a case that presents an issue that no one has an issue with or a question about in terms of existing law indicates that they're probably going to change the law. Well, this uh, is concerning, of course, and this is why local elections really, really matter. Yeah. And so let's talk about, because folks are like, okay, what does that mean, right? That, yeah. okay, so if they overrule Roe, what does that look like or or what happens? So it's not that the Supreme Court is going to come in and affirmatively say that across the board. That's it. Handmaid's Tale. Right. You're done. That's not it. What they'll do is something a little bit more, I guess, maybe nuanced isn't the right word. But what they'll say is that there isn't a federal constitutional right to privacy, right? That, That women don't have this right. Ergo, states can do what they want. And so if Mississippi has made this decision that they want a 15-week ban, then they can have a 15-week ban. And so then what happens is that every state in the union can then have a different law or rule when it comes to whether or not abortion is legal or not. And what it comes down to is the men and the women sitting in the Georgia House or the Georgia Senate voting on those laws and passing them but then maybe even more significantly, who's actually in the governor's mansion? Well, and we all know who needs to be in the governor's mansion. Well, and that's just it. So this really raises the temperature for 22, right? Well, right. And that's what I wonder, because if, what is it, over 60% of the country is pro-choice. Look, I think the deal is most people just want folks to stay out of their business, right? Like you can be for yourself pro-life, but you don't think that that you should be telling some other person what they can and cannot do with their body. I mean, so it is a very complicated of course. and nuanced subject, but let's talk about the timeline here. So they're going to hear this case. They're going to release an opinion in June of 2022, mm-hmm. okay? June of 2022. The next time that the state, House, and Senate can come back and pass an abortion ban is going to be in January of 23, right? What happens in between June of 22 and January of 23? The November of 22 election. And and let's be clear. Let's be clear. Let's be clear. If a Republican is elected as governor of the state of Georgia, that Republican will absolutely sign that abortion ban. If a Democrat, i.e. Stacey Abrams, is elected, and she is then the governor of Georgia in January of 23, my guess is she's going to veto it. 
Well, this is why local elections matter. And I'll give a shout out. At this point, this is why you need Senator Jen Jordan as your attorney general. Would you have anything? You'd have everything to do with that, right? You know, it it goes back to the role in terms of whether you defend a law or not. That's important in terms of if an unconstitutional law is passed. I will tell you that if I were elected as attorney general and Stacey was elected as governor, we could dismiss the appeal on 481, the heartbeat bill. Now the concern is, is that that may not matter after the Supreme Court actually determines the Dobbs case. That's crazy. It is. It is. It's really, the biggest thing is, you know, you hear so much now of people who don't want to get vaccinated and they'll say, well, it's my personal health care decision. No, and we've seen even the masking thing. You would see the signs that say, my body, my choice. Right. So I, this is so increasingly, it's just so maddening because it, it doesn't, it's just clearly about control. And, yes, that, and, that's the, and that's the whole thing. It's like, look, if you want to be pro-life, I, I, I have the ultimate respect for anybody and their faith and their values. Just don't tell me what what I can do. And the fact of the matter is, is women are always going to get abortions. If you're going to make it harder for them, it's going to be less safe. Well, it's going to be less safe. And women with means are going to be able to access care. That's because right. There will be. So if they send it back to the states, right, Georgia may ban abortion altogether, but Illinois won't. So if you're a wealthy woman, you can get on a plane and you can fly to Illinois. Right. But if you're poor and you live in Texas, what are you going to do? You're going to do something dangerous or potentially. Yeah. And so that's something to really keep our eye on and really why local elections matter more than ever. And, you know, we got to stay active and keep our eye on it. But it's definitely scary. And I watch Handmaid's Tale and I know I keep bringing it up, but it's just the control over women's bodies is is really, it's really troubling. It really is. Because I think half of those men uh, I saw in that photo op in Texas, I think would all faint at one period cramp. So the idea that they want to dictate women's health is is really, I mean, look, it's why I became attracted to you is because you said what was on the mind of so many women who have been through so many struggles when it comes to this issue. So there you go. All right. So we usually uh, end on a light note. So there you go. All right. Praise be under his eye. <laughs> Ladies, cover your legs. You know, we got to come up with a strategy to get more women elected who understand what's at stake. Look, and who even understand women's health. I mean, you know, when men don't know what a, an ultrasound is, a vaginal ultrasound, but they don't even understand how the process works. It is, it's troubling. And so that's why, even apart from all of this, we need more women in the room and at the table making these decisions because it is their lived experience. Right. I mean, if I said pap smear in front of a lot of those men, it would be. <gasps> so I'll just say it again. Pap smear. That's yeah, what I have but for you. I don't I don't really love pap smear. Either, so. <laughs> you know what I do love? I love when you say ergo. Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's a good one. All right. We want to thank Christina Loringer for producing Terminus Records for our music. To all of you, we've gotten so many great comments on Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much for rating and commenting on our show. You can always tweet us at Senator Jen, at Mara Davis. And, you know, we're going to keep you abreast. 
Does that make you uncomfortable? 